This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays, filling in for Gil Gross. On this edition of America Changed Forever from CBS News Radio, here we go again with this pandemic. Americans are now being advised to wear masks in more places. If you are vaccinated and you are one of those rare breakthrough infections, you actually have the capacity to pass it to somebody else. What's next? Another shutdown? Coming up, we're going to get the latest information on what to expect, as well as where and why the Delta variant is becoming a real problem. Also, as crime surges in cities across America, the feds and local police look for solutions. Coming up, what the Department of Justice is doing in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. We are experiencing uh, drive-by shootings much more than we've seen in the last several decades. And with rising crime, will the issue become passing gun control legislation in Congress? We'll look at the outlook with an expert on the issue. Well, I believe that President Biden would like to advance gun control measures. He certainly has a long political history of supporting stronger gun laws. But because of the political circumstances of the moment, it seems likely to me that the gun issue has been bumped pretty pretty far down the list. Then the first testimony is the January 6th House Select Committee hears from four officers attacked, beaten, and almost killed during the insurrection. I heard chanting from some in the crowd, get his gun and kill him with his own gun. Finally, a personal note from me as I find my voice. My message to you is this. Take a break. Don't let anxiety or panic attacks get the best of you. Get help. Seek answers. And don't bury your head in the sand like I did. But let's begin with the pandemic. This week, the Centers for Disease Control updated its mask guidelines recommending that fully vaccinated people wear masks indoors in areas with high transmission of COVID-19. So what's happening? A lot of us thought that things were getting better now that we'd been vaccinated. Joining us now with The Real Story, Dr. Mel Herbert with UCLA Medical Center. There are a lot of people out there who are confused about which way we're going now with this pandemic. What is the latest on on the masks? Why has the CDC decided that it is important that even those who are vaccinated now wear masks again? Yeah, I know this is a little confusing to people, but I'll try and break it down. The, the key thing people have to understand here is that the CDC isn't changing the guidance 
what's happening is that the virus is changing. So this virus, this Delta virus, which is the predominant virus throughout the world right now, is much more infectious than the original virus. It's two to two and a half times more infectious than that original virus. So it spreads much more easily. And recent data has suggested that even if you're vaccinated, you can have what's called a really high viral load. You can be replicating a lot of virus and therefore probably excreting a lot of virus even if you're vaccinated. So there's a study, it's a small study of about 100 people looking at people who had symptoms, who had COVID, who were vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And with this Delta virus, even the vaccinated people were excreting a lot of virus. So this means um, that they're probably able to infect other people. Before the Delta variant, the other variants that looked like when you were vaccinated, you didn't spread the virus very much, even if you got it. The, the, the vaccination really suppressed that. But this new version of the virus appears to be bypassing that. And so that's why this guidance from the CDC is if you're in a high prevalence area, and if you're indoors, even if you're vaccinated, in order to protect the unvaccinated people, you should wear a mask because wearing that mask will reduce your chance of spreading it to somebody else. So it is confusing because they were like, OK, if you're vaccinated, masks off, you can go inside. But this new virus, which hasn't been around for very long, but is bypassing that ability of the vaccination to reduce your ability to spread it, has meant that they've had some mask uh, changes. And it is confusing but it's because this virus is now much worse than it was even just a few months ago. There just always seems to be another twist with COVID-19. And right now, I think this country is, is starting to realize that the next few weeks are going to be difficult. Again, here we go again. Is that sort of, is, are we exaggerating? Or what do you think? Should we be concerned about where this is going? And could we be heading for another shutdown? Well, I think we should be concerned. I don't believe that it is going to be as bad as our last wave because, you know, 50% of people are vaccinated. We should not see that same overwhelming number of patients. But you are going to see guidance from the public health people trying to reduce the number of deaths as possible, saying, put your masks back on. Um, they're going to be suggesting that large gatherings indoors, we might uh, not do those. We probably shouldn't, particularly in areas where there is a lot of people unvaccinated. Again, I don't think it's going to be as bad and we can fix this if we do things like simple things like wearing masks when we're indoors. Most importantly, getting as many people vaccinated as possible. We can avoid major shutdowns like we saw in the past. But if we don't, particularly in areas where vaccination rates are low, you are going to see an explosion of uh, cases yet again. This is becoming really a, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And it is unfortunate that there are certain states and certain regions where there's really high proportions of, of people who are unvaccinated. And this virus is likely to spread through them very quickly. We're seeing it in the South right now, but anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world where there are pockets of people who are not fully vaccinated, then um, it is likely that this is going to spread through those populations very quickly. And I should say, we used to say if you'd had just one dose of the vaccine, a few weeks later, you had really good protection. Again, with this Delta variant, that's no longer true. That's uh, why we say you need to be fully vaccinated. Two vaccine shots for Pfizer and Moderna, and then two weeks after that, then you have really good protection. Because after one shot now with the Delta variant, it, it looks like it's less than 50% protective. So you really do need to get both of those shots. And uh, then about two weeks later, you'll have good protection for severe disease, for getting in the hospital, for getting really sick. But you still might get the virus because it's evading the vaccine a little bit. Probably not at the high end. You're probably not going to get really sick, but you still might get symptomatic and still might have to take a week off work if you get it badly. What symptoms 
should people watch out for? It's uh, all of the symptoms that you know we've heard from the beginning. You know, loss of taste, loss of smell, just sort of viral-like symptoms. I'm feeling achy. Um, I've got a cough. I feel a little short of breath. All of the same things. Nothing's really changed in terms of symptoms. But also remember that asymptomatic spread is a real thing. And that's one of the real problems with this. You can feel fine, particularly for the first four or five days before your symptoms and actually be excreting the virus. And in fact, again, for the Delta variant, it looks like you can be excreting virus for an additional two days asymptomatically before you become symptomatic. So if you've had an exposure that you know about, then you really should be wearing the mask and uh, you're staying away from people for at least a week because, you know, you can be asymptomatic for quite a long time. This virus is really very tricky, and this Delta variant really is pretty bad. I don't want to freak people out, because if we get lots of people vaccinated and do sort of the normal public health things, we can overcome this. But it really, really is incumbent on everybody who can get the vaccine to get the vaccine so we can be done with this thing, or it's going to keep happening. Yeah, and that, that is the other thing. is It's not as if we're... We're in this situation where, in this country at least, there is there seems to me to be no shortage of vaccine. It's just the fact that, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. People are are perhaps watching or listening to programs that are spreading misinformation and telling them not to get the vaccine. So it's it's not about there being a, a shortage of the vaccine. No, there is plenty of vaccine out there now. It really is about vaccine hesitancy and uh, a lot of misinformation. It is good to see that um, on some networks and some sort of commentators are now changing their tune and they're being much more positive. And hopefully that can turn things around a little bit, but we need them to keep doing it. And we need people to understand that by the time you get to the hospital, if you're sick, um, that's too late for the vaccine. Just terrible, tragic stories from colleagues in intensive care units and emergency departments across this country where patients have come in, they've decided they didn't want to get the vaccine, but now they're sick and now they want science to help them. And it's too late for the vaccine. Multiple cases of patients saying, oh, can I get the vaccine now? I'm like, no, you, you can't. It's too late. We have to intubate you. I'm not sure you'll even survive. You can't wait for science to save you on the end of this. By the time you're sick and in the hospital and the ICU, it's too late for the vaccine. You need to get it today to prevent yourself getting to that point because there's only so much we can do in the hospital with all our equipment, all our training, all our nurses, all our doctors. If you get really sick with this, there's very little we can do. But if you get a vaccine, that's the best treatment by far. Perfect place to end our conversation. Dr. Mel Herbert, thank you. You're welcome. Go get your vaccine, people. When we come back, police departments across America struggle to keep up with rising crime. This is America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Chuck Wexler is the executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum. Over the years, he has worked with numerous police departments across the country as they've innovated and reformed. Chuck, thanks for being with us. You are the expert here. Um, and I wanted to ask your opinion about, you know, we're seeing crime spike in, in some cities across the country, a lot of the big cities. Do you think any of that has to do with how police departments have responded to the social justice movement? Well, I, I don't think you can put your finger on any one thing. I think you've got a combination of factors. And, you know, look, it goes back almost 18 months when we first saw, the, you know, the pandemic first hit that put 
you know, police in a difficult position in terms of engaging with the community. So, and, and you know, we saw crimes go both up and down. For example, we saw um, commercial burglaries uh, went, went um, up while residential burglaries went down because people were breaking into businesses and then were not breaking into people's homes. We saw stolen cars go up because people were leaving their cars. So, but what has happened over that period, and of course you had the George Floyd incident, which was another factor with demonstrations and then police have become, I think it's fair to say across the country, there's police are, are being much more cautious about proactive policing. So you have a combination of factors, but what really troubles us, and you know well, cause you've been reporting on this, is the shootings and the homicides all involving guns. Record number of guns on the street. And I think that's you know one of the reasons from the federal perspective, they put together these task forces because you know that's a role for the federal government, you know, in terms of trying to look at interstate commerce of guns and trying to identify particular guns that are used over and over again. So I do think we we are in uncharted territory in terms of unprecedented number of shootings and homicides. Look at New York City, for example. You know, you're talking about a city that's had a 20-year decline. Uh, suddenly, last year or two, seen record increases, and you're seeing that in Chicago and uh, uh, and Los Angeles, across the country, and medium-sized cities too. Even in small cities like Asheville. North Carolina, um, you know, record number of, of crimes. So it's, it, you know, I guess the big question, Jeff, is are, is this a sort of a statistical artifact or are we in for a change uh, from the last 20 years? And you talked about these gun crimes task forces that the attorney general announced last week in five major cities across the country. Chuck, do you think these kinds of federal and local partnerships really work to reverse trends like the, the trends that we're seeing in some cities across the country right now? I think, you know, look, I think there's a division of labor. I mean, I worked in Minneapolis way back in the 90s when the New York Times called it Murderopolis and, and they were uh, approaching 90 homicides, which is where they are today. And one of the one of the strategies that the, the feds are really good at is the ATF. And when when we got the ATF to team up with local police, it was really it was like a force multiplier because the ATF can bring in resources locally, but also, for example, work with their counterparts in Chicago. So we saw a lot of the guns and drugs were coming from Chicago. So I think there's a role for the federal government certainly in using ballistics technology in helping police when you have you come to these crime scenes and literally you you have you know all of this ballistic material that that needs to be processed and sometimes jeff it may be just one gun that is being used in a number of crimes so i think when you do have the feds there they can also look at for example straw purchases now you can have someone who comes into a gun store and legitimately, um, you know, uses their own information to 
to, to, to get a number of guns, which are then used in crimes uh, in, in a particular state. And as you know, guns will be coming into across state lines. So I think, you know, the, the role of the federal government, at least in terms of ATF, uh, can be very helpful to local law enforcement. Um, it's, it's a role, an appropriate role for them. Yeah, well, hopefully it is helpful in, in those cities where the crime has really spiked. Um, there are a lot of residents in those cities who are, you know, literally af- afraid to just walk the streets. So we hope that it makes a difference in, in cities like Chicago, Washington, D.C., where it seems like every week you see another child being killed by uh, gunfire. Uh, so it's a really unfortunate situation. Let's talk about Justice in policing. Um, Still, over a year after the death of George Floyd, uh, we have not seen police reform legislation come out of Congress. Uh, Let's talk about, and, and this is why really I wanted to get you on the show. You work with so many police departments across this country, and you have um, for decades now. How much of this, in terms of police departments uh, changing, how much of this is public relations? Because just this week, another video, this time from Aurora, Colorado, which has had its issues with its police department. In fact, in the last couple of years, I think, the police chief there came in and had to uh, terminate 14 officers for misconduct. And now this week you have another video. I don't know if you saw it of a, a suspect being taken into custody. He's he's pleading for his life. He's wondering, well, what did I do? What did I do? The cop beats him over the head uh, with his pistol. Uh, did you happen to see that video, Chuck? I have read about it. I didn't see the video, but I know the situation you're talking about. And I, th- I think you know this is this is this is where I mean the, this is at the heart of what we need to change. Look, what what the American people are seeing today, because of body worn video cameras, is they're seeing images of the police that you know they they haven't seen before. And I think what's important here is what happens. What are the consequences? You know, I think even. 10 years ago, five or 10 years ago, you know, the police chiefs were not as reluctant to move as quickly as they are today. Today, there's, there's a lot more. Um, they recognize it's not enough to simply say we're investigating it. They're much more public holding officers accountable. It's not a panacea, but I think there's a sea change in the understanding that when you have an incident like this and you have it on video, you are sending a message by the actions you take. Um, you know, th- this is going to require a-, a new way of thinking in policing. The culture of policing is going to have to change from a culture of speed to slowing things down, using time and distance and recognizing that, you know, holding officers accountable, officers intervening to prevent an incident like that. All of those things uh, need to happen. But you know what? At the very moment, that we're focusing all of this attention on policing. The big challenge is who are going to be the police officers of the future. We've done surveys which show, you know, hiring is down considerably. Retirements are up 40%. So you're seeing a workforce which is under enormous pressure to change, um, but concern about who's going to want to be police officers of the future. You know, if you walk into a room with a bunch of police officers and you ask them, would you want your children to be cops, 
almost nobody raises their hand. So one of the challenges is what is to change policing. You need to hire police, you need to hold them accountable, and you need to train them differently. But how are we going to do that when the very job of being a police officer seems so daunting today? Yeah, so what do you say to the next generation, male and female, of police officer? What do you say to them if you're working with some of these police departments across the country? What do you, what do you say to them to, to get these young potential recruits to listen and to want to serve their communities? Uh, walking a beat, what, what kind of message do you send to them to get them interested in that job? Well, you know, you really, you know, you really have to, uh, appeal to their, their, their better interests. And, 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 and really, you know, I, the reason, one of the reasons I've always been so interested in policing uh, for a long time is a recognition that if you want to make a difference, um, that this is an occupation that where you're helping the homeless, you're dealing with someone who has an addiction issue, you're dealing with people who are in trouble, you're, you're doing all of the things that idealistic, uh, progressive people really want to do to make a difference. You have to you have to appeal to that side. Uh, we're going to have to you know rethink who are going to be the police officers of the future. Um, it's going to be difficult. I mean, I I don't underestimate the the challenge of of hiring uh, in this environment because I, I think right now police are you know are facing you know an uphill battle to regain public trust. America Changed Forever from CBS News Radio returns after the break. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. There is also this never-ending debate about gun control. Just this week, the maker of the rifle used in the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School offered victims' families nearly $33 million to settle their lawsuit. Will there be gun control legislation coming next in Congress? Robert Spitzer is with SUNY Cortland in New York. You've written for years about gun control in this country. Uh, where do you think the issue stands now with the Biden administration in the White House? Uh, you have uh, Democrats running the House, uh, of course, the Republicans uh, with this narrow margin in the Senate. So where do you think gun control legislation stands now? Well, I believe that President Biden would like to advance gun control measures. He certainly has a long political history of supporting stronger gun laws. But because of the political circumstances of the moment, it seems likely to me that the gun issue has been bumped pretty, pretty far down the list. And there are a couple of basic reasons for that. One reason is because of the very narrow majorities that the Democrats maintain in both houses of Congress. And add to that the uh, filibuster in the Senate, which President Biden thus far has said 
he does not want to see eliminated means that, of course, uh, measures would need to garner 60 votes in the Senate to overcome a filibuster threat. And there seems to be basically no chance that that will happen for any gun measures. It's certainly possible that there are measures that could garner those votes, but it's hard to imagine, for me at least, that the White House would want to exert the degree of pressure it would need to exert because of the other big thing going on, which is the very packed legislative agenda that President Biden has extending to infrastructure, uh, additional spending for the economy, immigration reform, and there's a lots of other stuff going on. And he's got to make a calculus as president to rank order and establish priority for his initiatives. And I just think in that mix of factors, the gun issue in terms of Congress, at least, falls and will wind up being pretty far down the list. The one thing Biden can do and has done is to advance some more limited measures through unilateral executive action. And uh, that is, uh, I think, significant. Do you think the issue of gun control is part of the the issue with some of the, the crime that we're seeing across the country? Well, when you look at what's been happening with criminality in the country, we've seen a rise in violent crime, a rise in gun crime, a rise in murders. And that certainly is, is a disturbing trend. And the backdrop is the fact that the majority of murders in America are committed with guns. There is no tool, no implement that is more effective and efficient at killing a human being than a firearm. Um, and it is a key explanation for why American uh, uh, homicide rates are significantly higher than the homicide rates of other similar nations. The, these partnerships between the feds and local and state police, uh, do you think they are an effective tool to reversing these trends across the country? I think they are one important tool. It's important to remember that policing and criminality is fundamentally uh, regulated and addressed at the local level. There are 18,000 police departments in the United States, and that's really where the rubber meets the road when it comes to criminality. And it's important to point out, too, that this spike in crime and violent crime and in homicides has occurred in a very small number of places around the country. I mean, the typical community has not witnessed some sudden spike in, in uh, murders, for example, but we have seen it in areas that tend to be more crime prone historically. Um, and as a consequence, any uh, kind of cooperation, any kind of programming, any kind of targeted spending that uh, encourages and promotes uh, community intervention programs, for example, which occur at the local level, but the federal government has an ability to provide funding and assistance to localities to uh, reenact, to reengage in uh, violence intervention programs, which, by the way, demonstrated some effectiveness before the pandemic. And one of the consequences of the pandemic is precisely that community intervention programs were interrupted for the obvious reason that you didn't want there to be lots of interpersonal contact, door-to-door -door activity, and things like that in the middle of a pandemic. So many of those programs were halted because of the pandemic. And that also, I think, is part of the reason why we've seen an upsurge in crime. Anything else that we haven't talked about that you think is important to mention? Well, the only other factor I would point to is there, there's certainly been a breakdown in police community relations around the country, not everywhere, not uniformly, but police have been besieged. Uh, police, there obviously there's been police behavior that has been problematic. We've seen film footage of uh, police using excessive force. 
that has facilitated the split between police and communities. And police rely on good community relations to deter crimes and solve crimes. So that part of the puzzle, I think, is also part of the explanation for what's going on. Part of that is uh, a uh, problem that the police themselves bear some responsibility for, but uh, it is a complicated picture. Stay with us. This is America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. This week, emotional testimony on Capitol Hill during the opening hours of the January 6th House Select Committee. At some point during the fighting, I was dragged from the line of officers and into the crowd. I heard someone scream. I got one. During those moments, I remember thinking there was a very good chance I would be torn apart or shot to death with my own weapon. I thought of my four daughters who might lose their dad. We heard from four of the officers who literally fought for their lives during the insurrection. D.C. Metropolitan Police Officers Daniel Hodges and Michael Fanone and Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn and Sergeant Aquilino Ganell. They were emotional and I think effective in conveying how what they faced was combat and not some tour group as some GOP members of Congress have alleged. There was no insurrection and to call it an insurrection in my opinion is a bold-faced lie. Watching the TV footage of those who entered the Capitol and walked through Statuary Hall showed people in an orderly fashion staying between the stanchions and ropes taking videos and pictures. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. It is imperative that the events of January 6th are fully investigated in the Congress and the American people know the truth of what actually occurred and that all those responsibles are held accountable. My fellow officers and I were committed to not letting any rioters breach the Capitol. It was a prolonged and desperate struggle. I too was being crushed by the rioters. I could feel my, myself losing oxygen and recall thinking to myself, this is how I'm going to die, defending this entrance. They were uh, white men in good shape with load-bearing vests equipped with molly pouches. They were wearing BDUs or battle dress uniform pants, tactical boots, black sunglasses, and short haircuts. They had radios, and one was equipped with an earpiece. After a bit of small talk, one of them asked my colleagues something to the effect of, is this all the manpower you have? The sea of people was punctuated throughout by flags, mostly variations of American flags and Trump flags. One flag read, don't give up the ship. Another had crossed rifles beneath the skull, emblazoned with the pattern of the American flag. To my perpetual confusion, I saw the thin blue line flag, symbol of support for law enforcement more than once, being carried by the terrorists as they ignored our commands and continued to assault us. Eventually, there was a surge in the crowd, the fence buckled and broke apart, and we were unable to hold the line. A chaotic melee ensued. Terrorists pushed through the line and engaged us in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Several attempted to knock me over and steal my baton. One latched onto my face and got his thumb in my right eye, attempting to gouge it out. I cried out in pain and managed to shake him off. Managed to shake him off before any permanent damage was done. I couldn't fully engage anyone, for the moment I do is when another 20 terrorists move in to attack while my hands are full. It was all we could do to keep ourselves on our feet and continue to fall back. Not long afterward, I heard someone calling for officers to move to assist. I sealed myself for another round and descended a stairway into a long hallway filled with smoke and screams. Directly in front of me, a man seized the opportunity of my vulnerability. He grabbed the front of my gas mask and used it to beat my head against the door. He switched to pulling it off my head, the straps stretching against my skull and straining my neck. He never uttered any words I recognized, but opted instead for guttural screams. 
Eventually, he succeeded in stripping away my gas mask, and a new rush of exposure to CS and OC spray hit me. The mob of terrorists were coordinating their efforts now, shouting, heave, ho, as they synchronized, pushing their weight forward, crushing me further against the metal doorframe. The man in front of me grabbed my baton that I still held in my hands, and in my current state, I was unable to retain my weapon. He bashed me in the head and face with it, rupturing my lip and adding additional injury to my skull. I knew I couldn't sustain much more damage and remain upright. At best, I would collapse and be a liability to my colleagues. At worst, be dragged out into the crowd and lynched. Unable to move or otherwise signal the officers behind me that I needed to fall back, I did the only thing that I could do and screamed for help. I was stunned by what I saw. And what seemed like a sea of people, Capitol Police officers and Metropolitan Police officers, MPD, were engaged in desperate hand-to-hand fighting with rioters across the West Lawn. Until then, I had never seen anyone physically assault Capitol Police or MPD, let alone witness mass assaults being perpetrated on law enforcement officers. I witnessed the rioters using all kinds of weapons against officers, including flagpoles, metal bike racks that they had torn apart, and various kinds of projectiles. Officers were being bloodied in the fighting. Many were screaming, and many were blinded and coughing from chemical irritants being sprayed in their faces. I told them to just leave the Capitol, and in response, they yelled, no, man, this is our house. President Trump invited us here. That prompted a torrent of racial epithets. One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, you hear that, guys? This nigger voted for Joe Biden. No one had ever, ever called me a nigger while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer. As the afternoon wore on, I was completely drained, both physically and emotionally. And in shock and total disbelief over what had happened, I sat down on a bench in the rotunda with a friend of mine who was also a black Capitol Police officer and told him about the racial slurs. I became very emotional and began yelling, how the blank could something like this happen? Is this America? I began sobbing. Officers came over to console me. At some point during the fighting, I was dragged from the line of officers and into the crowd. I heard someone scream, I got one. As I was swarmed by a violent mob, they grabbed and stripped me of my radio. They seized ammunition that was secured to my body. They began to beat me with their fists and with what felt like hard metal objects. At one point, I came face to face with an attacker who repeatedly lunged for me and attempted to remove my firearm. I heard chanting from some in the crowd, get his gun and kill him with his own gun. I was aware enough to recognize I was at risk of being stripped of and killed with my own firearm. I was electrocuted again and again and again with a taser. I'm sure I was screaming, but I don't think I could even hear my own voice. My body camera captured the violence of the crowd directed toward me during those very frightening moments. It's an important part of the record for this committee's investigation and for the country's understanding of how I was assaulted and nearly killed as the mob attacked the Capitol that day. During those moments, I remember thinking there was a very good chance I would be torn apart or shot to death with my own weapon. As my physical injuries gradually subsided and the adrenaline that had stayed with me for weeks waned, I've been left with the psychological trauma and the emotional anxiety of having survived such a horrific event. And my children continue to deal with the trauma of nearly losing their dad that day. What makes the struggle harder and more painful is to know so many of my fellow citizens, including so many of the people I put my life at risk to defend, 
are downplaying or outright denying what happened. I feel like I went to hell and back to protect them and the people in this room, but too many are now telling me that hell doesn't exist or that hell actually wasn't that bad. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. Before I begin, I'd like to take a moment of my time to ask for a moment of silence for my fallen colleague, Officer Brian Sicknick, who died from injuries he sustained in the line of duty defending the capital of our beloved democracy. We spoke with Sandra Garza earlier this month. She was Brian Sicknick's partner. That's what hurts me and Gladys and the rest of his family so much is that the, the very people that he defended and protected that day, regardless of his cause of death, um, that and also him being a Republican, that the majority of those people have literally turned their back on him. The Justice Department has now cleared the way for people around Donald Trump, who was president at the time, to testify. But no doubt some of them, if not all, will put up a fight as the Democrats in Congress try to assign blame for the insurrection on former President Trump and his supporters. More to come. This is America Changed Forever from CBS News Radio. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. This week, I went public with a personal struggle. I lost my voice, and frankly, I thought my career was over. And it, you know, it's called uh, spasmodic, spasmodic dysphonia. What happens is when you talk, your vocal cords push together, creating the sound. In my case, and in the, the case of Uh, Others who have spasmodic dysphonia, the vocal cords don't come together. Um, And what they've told me is that there's no cure. Um, It's the kind of thing where they still don't know how it starts. In an interview with my CBS News colleague, Jerika Duncan, on her Instagram page, I revealed that anxiety as a result of a divorce living through the pandemic and covering active shooter situations more than I care to count, death and loss, among other stories, had led to the kind of anxiety that I knew, well, it just wasn't normal. And then I started losing my voice. When I finally gave in and went to see a doctor at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, I discovered that I had something called spasmodic dysphonia. 
It is a voice disorder that causes involuntary spasms in the muscles of the voice box or larynx. This causes the voice to break and have a tight, strained, or strangled sound. There were times when I felt defeated and depressed. If you've been listening to this show, and I know you have, you probably heard it in my voice and wondered, geez, man, what is wrong with your voice? Well, now you know. But let me also tell you there is no cure. And doctors really don't know why it happens except to say that there's something in the brain that causes it to happen. I believe it was tied to the anxiety that I was feeling. It was tied to the panic attacks. The good news for me is that I've been treated with a temporary fix. A few weeks ago, I had Botox injected into my vocal cords. Yeah, they're using Botox for that too, and it has given me what doctors say will likely be a three-month reprieve. And I'm going to keep getting that Botox injection. I'm going to keep getting it in my voice, in my vocal cords, because it allows me to do this and my other job on television. I love doing both. But my message to you is this. Take a break. Don't let anxiety or panic attacks get the best of you. Get help. Seek answers. And don't bury your head in the sand like I did. It's okay to ask for help. I'll be back next week. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, Jeff Begay's CBS, and on Instagram, Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhall and District Productive. For Gil Gross, I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to America Changed Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.